Walking in Nature. Welcome to One Foot in Front of the Other, a series about walking. As you listen, go out for a walk or a roll or a sit, or stay where you are and come on a walk with me instead. I'm going to talk about what walking has been like over the last year or so, how it's changed, how it's been painfully unchanging, and some of the things I've seen, heard and found out along the way. A note on content. In this episode, I talk about being ill with COVID and being in pain. I'm on a walk with my friend Hannah. We've looked at a map, we've planned a route, we've decided where to go, found the end point, worked out how long it will take us. We're outside Manchester on the edge of the Peak District and the air is noticeably easier to breathe. It's cold so we walk quickly to warm ourselves up, covering the ground as fast as we can. But then suddenly, Hannah stops and turns off the path into the woods, just a little way. Forest bathing, she says. We stand in the forest in silence and do nothing. We stand and look and listen and smell and breathe and feel. At first, this feels really strange. I feel an impulse to move, to keep going, to be doing something. I feel self-conscious and I have to stifle a giggle, but the longer we stand and do nothing, the more I warm to it, the more I notice about the woods, the less I notice about myself. I forget that it's cold. Shinrin-yoku is a Japanese concept of forest bathing. It's rooted in Shinto and Buddhist ideals of harmonic balance with nature and was named in the 1980s when the Japanese Forestry Agency proposed that everyone should regularly spend time in a forest to improve their health. There's growing research that it boosts both your mental and physical well-being, immersing yourself in the trees to absorb their goodness. Ideally, you forest bathe in an actual forest, but really all you need is trees. I wonder if you're around any trees right now. Maybe you're in the woods. Maybe you're in your garden. Maybe you can see trees from a window. I close my eyes and take a big, deep breath in through my nose. The woods smell damp, crisp, fragrant, alive. The smell of the forest changes throughout the year. The honey sweetness of the grass and the flowers when it's warm. Musty, wet leaves in late autumn. The sharpness of fir trees in the coldness of winter. In spring, you can be suddenly overcome with the pungent smell of wild garlic. The rain adds another dimension. Petrichor is the name of the warm, sweet, earthy smell after a downpour. When raindrops hit a porous surface like the ground or the trees in the forest, different chemical compounds are released and the air humidity means these compounds find it easier to reach our noses. Oils are released from plants and bacteria give off geosmin a molecule that humans are really sensitive to the smell of. Some scientists believe that our sensitivity to and love of this smell is evolutionary and in hunter-gatherer times would have alerted us to recent rainfall and more food. What can you smell? Maybe nothing at first, but stay with it and there will be something there. I take another big, deep breath in and start to pay attention to what I can hear. I'm struck by how quiet it is, and how loud it is at the same time. Silence isn't really silence outdoors. 
There might be the rush or drip or almost imperceptible trickle of water. There might be hundreds of varieties of birds singing. There might be footsteps or leaves shuffling or twigs snapping as people or other animals move through the forest. There is always the wind, whether it's a breeze you have to work to hear or a roar that makes the trees creak threateningly. On a different walk, on a different day, Hannah and I are standing in some different woods when there's a creak. A tree in the wind? It happens again. And suddenly it's clear that it isn't a creak at all, but a fast, echoing, drumming sound. It is huge. We look at each other, confused, and then have a moment of realisation. Is it a woodpecker? We look up, craning our necks to see if we can catch a glimpse of the source of this noise. It goes quiet again and I worry that we've lost it, but a few seconds later, there it is again. We take steps towards where we think it's coming from which changes depending on the wind, so we're gingerly muddling round the woods with our heads turned skyward, trying not to fall over. And then there it is. Right at the top of a massive, old, dead tree. Each time it pecks, the noise reverberates down into the hollow. I've never seen a woodpecker before, and I'm transfixed. Happily surprised by how small it is, how big a noise it makes, how fast it moves, how we've managed to see it amongst the branches. And then some other walkers come along the path chatting and the woodpecker is spooked, taking off and flying further than we can see. There are infinite things to look at, and the more I look, the more I see. A forest gives way to individual trees, trunks, limbs, the pattern and texture of different bark, the ways different trees branch and divide and become thinner and more delicate, the veins on each leaf, the dance of light and shadow as light is filtered through layer and layer of foliage the sapling competing with giants hundreds of times bigger, the way the carpet of dead leaves changes colour around different trees. Hannah has learnt how to identify trees in winter by their buds. I'd never even noticed that trees had buds in winter before she pointed them out. I wonder if you had. When all the leaves are gone, looking at the buds is a reliable way of working out which tree is which. Beech trees have buds that are long and thin, like toothpicks. Beautiful coppery brown. Oaks have buds in a lovely cluster at the end of the branch and ashes have small black buds in pairs that are shaped almost like deer hooves. We run our fingers over each bud, lightly and carefully. We're told not to touch things in the wild, to leave things as they are. The fact that we assume human touch will be destructive says a lot about how disconnected many of us are from nature. But touch can be caring, touch can be gentle. Touch is a way of discovering, of understanding more. The roughness of bark. The softness, smoothness, sleekness of leaves. The feel of each line and joint and bend of a branch. The shape and the form of the forest floor. The breeze on my cheek. I take a big, deep breath. It feels easier, here. The air is fresher and there's less pollution. My lungs feel clearer, bigger, better. I feel refreshed in a way that's difficult to articulate. I feel everything melt away, just a little bit. Studies show that spending time in nature decreases our levels of cortisol, a stress hormone. And it's theorised that breathing in phytoncides, the chemicals emitted by trees and plants, boosts your immune system. There's growing evidence that after spending time in nature, our parasympathetic nervous system is more likely to be activated. 
This is the system responsible for the rest and digest processes in our bodies, instead of being in fight or flight mode. When our parasympathetic nervous system is activated, our immune and digestive systems can function properly and we feel safe, calm and happy. I don't always have the time or the energy to stop and notice. And sometimes, if it's pissing it down, I just don't want to. But I think something lovely happens when I pause. When I don't just power through and try to reach the end of the walk or the top of the hill as quickly as possible. The writer Nan Shepherd spent years walking on and around Cairngorm in Scotland. In her book, The Living Mountain, she writes that instead of aiming for the summit, as she had done a lot previously, she found much more when she went aimlessly, merely to be with the mountain as one visits a friend, with no intention but to be with him. Taking time to stop and notice opens me to a world of possibility that I would never have if I just rushed through. You can never know everything about a tree or a forest or the world, but just accept that you might know it a bit better, might understand it better and love it more every day. The poet Patrick Kavanagh famously said, to know fully even one field or one land is a lifetime's experience. In the world of poetic experience, it is depth that counts, not width. It's all very well going on about how great walking in nature is, but how easy is it to just go out and do? We're increasingly more disconnected from nature than past generations. My grandma seems to just instinctively know the names of all the birds and plants and trees that she comes across. The difference between the call of a sparrow and a chaffinch, when to expect snowdrops and bluebells to appear. I wonder if there's anyone in your life who's got this skill. Somehow, all this knowledge has escaped me. Until quite recently, I could only identify the ones that are so common they've become caricatured. Pigeons, magpies, robins, daffodils and holly trees. That's about it. We're increasingly aware of the climate crisis and the natural world has been under threat from humans on a large scale since the Industrial Revolution. How can we really save it? How can we really value its importance if we don't have a genuine connection to it? One problem is that not everyone has equal access to nature. How much nature is there to access, though? I wonder, how much of the UK do you think is built on? Pick a figure in your head. Are you sure? I'll tell you. Less than 6%. I would have thought it was much higher. According to research by Alistair Ray at the University of Sheffield in 2017, the proportion of the UK that's built on was 5.9%. This is roads, buildings, airports and industrial areas. 2.5% of the country was green urban, like parks, gardens, sports pitches and golf courses. 56.7% was farmland, including fields and orchards. And 34.9% was natural or semi-natural. The moors, heaths, wetlands, beaches, forests that are nicest to walk in. So we know what the country is made up of. But is it as simple as just finding your nearest piece of natural, semi-natural or green urban land and going for a walk? The UK is about 60 million acres. Nice and big. And as we've seen, most of it isn't built on. 
Great. But who does it belong to? It turns out that less than 1% of the population owns more than half of England. And the top 50 landowners own more than 7 million acres of the UK. More than a quarter of these top 50 are royalty and nobility and have inherited land that's been in the same family for centuries. The biggest landowner in the UK is the Forestry Commission, who own 2.2 million acres of land. The rest of the top 10 individual landowners are the Ministry of Defence, the Crown Estate, the National Trust, the RSPB, United Utilities, three Dukes and a Danish billionaire. We also don't know who owns about 15% of the English countryside. I could go on about ownership and how unfair it seems, but what does this all mean if you want to go for a nice walk? Some of this privately owned land is open to walk on, like that owned by organisations such as the National Trust and the Forestry Commission. Public footpaths are, quite obviously, public. And the Countryside and Rights of Way Act 2000 gave us the right to roam over about 8% of England. This applies to access land, mountains, moors, heaths and downs that are privately owned. We currently have much better access to private land than we did 100 years ago. But there's a difference between being allowed to access land and being able to access it. If you can't walk long distances or you don't have a car, you're quite limited. Even in public parks, forests and beaches, there is limited space that's properly accessible. For example, because paths aren't flat or smooth. There are steps and stiles and narrow gates everywhere that aren't enough for the right kinds of public toilets. Public transport is prohibitively expensive and unreliable or the refreshments available don't have options for halal, kosher and vegan diets. The outdoors should belong to everyone and it's ridiculous that something so simple is gatekept and only easy to access for a narrow group of people. Walking in nature is often thought of as the domain of middle-class white people. Most books, films, TV, adverts about nature feature solely white people. We often talk about the city being unsafe, but being out of the city can be similarly unwelcoming for certain groups of people. Many women, queer people and people of colour don't feel safe, particularly by themselves. In response, there have been a wealth of hiking groups and programmes set up to democratise this access and reclaim nature by and for people who have historically been excluded. Where else can you find nature? What are your options if you can't leave your area because you have no car or no money for public transport or you don't feel safe leaving or there's a lockdown on? For months, I couldn't access much nature. There are no big parks near me, so I was limited to patches of grass, occasional trees and pocket parks surrounded by streets and concrete. These pockets of nature are under threat. Land, especially land in the city, is a prime opportunity for people to make money. And the government's austerity measures have slashed council's budgets for parks over the last decade. Everything in ecology is connected in a delicate balance. And it's only by listening, looking, feeling, waiting to know them that we can properly start to understand these connections in order to protect them. When we intervene, when we build relentlessly, when these connections are stretched or twisted or severed, the balance is gone. We often live over rather than with nature, and although it adapts as much as it can, the impact is tangible. When it rains heavily, the lack of trees and the fact that cities are mainly concrete means that water isn't absorbed and so there's much more flooding. Birds continue to sing when the streetlights come on.
the separation between us and nature is a bit of a myth. There's always a wall, a fence, a stile, an old hut, some litter half buried to remind you that we're here. The landscape isn't natural even when it seems pristine. There are a few places in the world we haven't yet touched, but much of the UK countryside, although we're spoilt for nature, has been planned, shaped, redesigned. Reservoirs, forests, fields for grazing. They all seem natural at first, but if you hone in on them, it's clear that a huge amount of work has crafted our landscape. We leave the city to reconnect, but our experience is mitigated by paths, roads, signposts, cairns that mark the way, even on top of mountains. When I try to think about nature in this city, I think of my window in my flat, and I think of the sky and the flock of birds who dance across it, darting and twisting. They fly straight, turn, fly straight again, pause for a millisecond to be lifted on the breeze, turn, swoop down. How do they know which way to go? How do they sense each tiny movement in the wings of each of their flock? How are they so in tune? They split and each group goes a different way for a while, and then they rejoin and somehow again are one perfect whole. They dart quicker and quicker around this small patch of sky. They turn and fly directly at my window until just at the last minute they flick upward and fly overhead like a wave, like a carefully choreographed dance. They're noisy too. I am overjoyed when one day I go out for a short walk and round the corner the flock are gathered in three trees singing away. There's so many of them that it's deafening, but because they're so small and so high up, they're almost invisible and it feels like the trees are screaming. I'm sure these birds have been here longer than I have, but I never noticed them before this year. I've been trying to work out what they are. They've never stayed still long enough for me to see them properly, but I've spent ages squinting at them, trying to listen to them, googling different types of birds. I've narrowed it down to either goldfinches or chaffinches or sparrows or coltits. I don't expect to win any awards for bird watching anytime soon. I can't explain it, but watching them swoop overhead from my window makes me want to cry. I've spent hours watching this flock, and there's days where they don't appear until late in the afternoon and I worry that they're gone. But then one by one they appear and gather and soar and just for a moment, Everything's right again. 